who is Jesus really? (laughs) Jesus does not fit the expectations the Jews have for the Messiah. There are many prophecies that connect the Messiah's coming. This is like in the Hebrew Bible prophecies that connect the Messiah's coming with with the end times when God um, comes in great power and uh, saves Israel from her foes and reestablishes her in peace and prosperity. Well, Palestine has been crushed under foreign rulers for centuries, with only a brief few years of independence under the Hasmonean dynasty that was established by the Maccabees in between what um, the, the Hebrew Bible time period and the New Testament time period. So the Romans crushed that brief Jewish independence only 60 years before Jesus' birth. So, so this is a, they are recently, uh, you know, oppressed like this. They've been at war forever, but, but it's only been in the last 60 years that Rome um, stripped them of their independence and, and occupies them. So um, the Romans have ruled over the promised land ever since. Uh, The high priests in the temple, the local regional rulers, like the various Herods, all serve at the pleasure of the Romans. And there is widespread unrest. Um, And, you know, if we flip forward, only 30 years or so after Jesus dies, this will all boil over into an outright war between the Jews and the Romans. That's how crazy, delicate, and tense the situation is during Jesus' lifetime. The Jews remember the glorious warriors spawned by the Maccabees who fought for and won Jewish independence, and they bitterly resent the Roman occupation. If Jesus is the promised Messiah King, he couldn't have come at a better time. The problem is, There are two sorts of prophecies about the Messiah in the Hebrew Bible. One type says things like this passage in Isaiah 59. The Lord looked and was appalled. There was no justice, no one to intervene. So he armed himself, putting on a breastplate of righteousness, a helmet of salvation, and a cloak of vengeance. He will repay his enemies according to what they have done. He, the Messiah, will come like a dam breaking. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those who repent. That word redeemer means kinsman redeemer. Um, If you uh, studied the Book of Ruth with us, you would remember kinsman redeemer. In Jewish law, a kinsman redeemer is your closest male relative, the one obligated to marry, support, and rescue a widowed sister-in-law in her time of grief and need. In this passage, it is powerful imagery. Israel's closest relative, her her kinsman redeemer, her Messiah, the anointed one is coming to save her. This end time repayment 
is painted pretty graphically by the prophets throughout the Hebrew Bible, usually in passages specifically targeted at whoever Israel's current enemy is at the time. The terms are often barbaric and reflective of how the injustices and suffering Israel had sustained at the hands of her enemy um, played out. So they had experienced rape and pillaging and the slaughter of infants. That's exactly what they expected God to do when God came to set things right. Um, As we've seen, that, you know, doesn't actually track with, with how God does things, but this was how they understood it. So there are prophecies that speak of the earth shaking, mountains melting, and stars falling from the sky. But if you keep reading, all this God coming as a warrior prophecy is always followed by tender prophecies. The one we just read finishes like this. The Lord says, this is my covenant with you. My spirit is upon you and will not depart from you. The words I have put in your mouth will be in your lips and on the lips of your descendants now and forever. So it makes sense that Israel understands the Messiah himself to be a powerful warrior king, as we saw. But in many, many prophecies, the Messiah is also portrayed as being humble. Here's an example. Rejoice greatly and shout, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming to you full of justice and salvation. He is poor, riding on a donkey. The Messiah King is poor and riding on a donkey? And there are tons of prophecies about the Messiah's suffering and how people despise him. The entire chapter of Isaiah 53 is one of what's called the, quote, suffering servant prophecies about the Messiah. Here's an excerpt from that chapter. He was oppressed and treated harshly, but he never said a word. He was like a lamb led to be slaughtered. So if you're a Jew living in this occupied land, seething with resentment and boiling with tension, which Messiah verses are you going to naturally cling to? The warrior Messiah or the despised and afflicted humble Messiah? These are such contrasting prophecies that some Jews actually believed there would be two completely different messiahs who would come at the same time. One would be king, another who would be priest. Um, There are prophecies in in the Hebrew Bible that would lead you to that conclusion. But most Jews living in Palestine believe in only one Messiah, and and that continues to this day. I mean, you know, you take in as a whole, the body of prophecy indicates one Messiah. But, but, you know, here in Roman Palestine, they are definitely looking for a warrior king to rescue them from Roman oppression and reestablish the nation of Israel. So the, the Romans and all their minions, including the high priest who they appoint, and the various Herods, who are governing the different geographical areas, are all on high alert against any such person. They all have particular self-interests to protect. 
but they are of one mind that Jesus could be the figure, the angry and discontented people rally around. So, so you can see how vital it was for, for the, the Romans and the high priests and the Herods to, you know, kind of stamp out any fake Messiah. Now, the high priests being Jews are going to want to um, be fully on the side of the quote real Messiah, but they have so much to lose at that point. They got to be absolutely sure he really is really, really the real Messiah. And they have particular criteria they want fulfilled. God's billboards of miraculous healings and raising people from the dead are creating all sorts of rumors. Everyone in Palestine is talking about the Messiah. Could it be Jesus? Or is he the prophet like Moses that was prophesied? Or the Elijah who was prophesied to come first? Or is he just an all-around fake? Who is Jesus really? The stories in the Gospels begin to coalesce around this question. Jesus' miracles and the things he says become more and more alarming to those in positions of power. Here is a perfect example. This story is one of the few that is so important, it appears in all four Gospels, including John. After Jesus hears the news of John the Baptist's beheading, he gets in a boat and goes to a quiet place to get away from the crowds so he can mourn the loss of his dear cousin. But the crowds follow him, running around the shore, following wherever his boat is going. By the time Jesus' boat lands, there's a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children already there waiting for him. Poor Jesus. But his heart goes out to them because they're like a herd of sheep rushing from place to place without a shepherd. So he begins to teach them and to heal them. As the day wears on, the disciples become concerned. Jesus had headed to this deserted place to mourn for John. And now it's nearly dinner time and there's no food for this huge crowd of people to eat. The disciples suggest that Jesus send the people away to the surrounding villages to purchase food. But Jesus says, they don't need to do that. You give them something to eat. <laughs> and Philip pipes up and says, are you kidding? That would cost more than a half a year's wages. And then Andrew says, well, this boy here has like five pieces of barley bread and a couple of fish but there's no way this will feed all these people. And Jesus says, it will do just fine. He says, have the people sit down in groups of 50 or so. And when the people are settled, Jesus takes the boy's sack lunch and looking up to heaven, he gives thanks and begins breaking the bread and fish into pieces and handing it to his disciples to distribute to the people. Everyone eats until they are full. Then Jesus tells his disciples to gather any pieces left over so that nothing is wasted. And the disciples gather 12 baskets full of leftovers. 
So think about why this story is in all four Gospels. Why is this a big deal? Perhaps it's because Jesus has just proven that not only can he heal all diseases and raise people from the dead, but he can provide actual physical food. This is extreme abundance. And according to John, the people begin murmuring about making Jesus king, like immediately. Jesus realizes the danger and immediately dismisses the crowd and hustles his disciples back onto the boat to cross back over to Capernaum, which is where Jesus lives. The people see the disciples get on the boat, and I bet they assume Jesus is headed back home because like night is beginning to fall. And just like they chased him here, I suspect they start running to try to meet Jesus on the other side. But Jesus doesn't get on the boat with his disciples. He is able to slip away. He climbs the deserted mountainside to pray, alone at last. Jesus prays and grieves all night long. When dawn breaks, he sees his disciples' flotilla of boats has not made much headway, for the wind has been against them. He can see the disciples straining at the oars. Finally, just before dawn, Jesus walks out to them, walking right across the water, and he just keeps walking as if he's going to pass them by. The disciples think they're seeing a ghost, but Jesus calls out to them, courage, courage, it's me, don't be afraid. Now, Mark and John in their stories both say Jesus just climbs into the boat after that. But Matthew adds something to the story. Now, knowing that Mark is earlier than Matthew and that when versions of a story are different, there is a likelihood, possibility, that the additions are later embellishments, we'll keep that in mind as we look at the bit that Matthew alone adds. Matthew says that Peter calls out, Lord, if it really is you, then command me to come to you on the water. That's interesting that he wants Jesus to command it, sort of like how Jesus uses command language when he is healing people. I wonder if Peter feels like there's more of a chance of it working if Jesus commands it. And Jesus does use an imperative, a command in Greek. He says, come. And Peter climbs out of the boat and actually walks on the water. He gets all the way to Jesus, but then he sort of freaks out at the wind. And of course, when he stops trusting Jesus, he sinks and screams, save me. Jesus catches him immediately and says, hey, you with a small amount of faith, why did you waver? I think Jesus may have been teasing him a little. I hear this phrase with such a tone of fondness. These guys are best buds, one man to another. Don't idealize Jesus so much that you miss the voice of the real man in his words. Jesus is like, hey, bro, I got you. Never doubt that. And they climb into the boat together and the wind dies down. Now here the accounts diverge. Luke has omitted this whole you know, story about walking on water. So there's only three versions. 
John says the disciples are actually too scared to let Jesus in the boat until he speaks and identifies himself. But then they let him in the boat and immediately they make it to shore. Matthew, the one who has this little insert about Peter walking on water, says everyone worships Jesus and exclaims, truly, you are the son of God. But Mark says something really weird. He says that when Jesus gets in the boat, everyone is completely overwhelmed with amazement, for they had not understood about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. And that that doesn't seem to make any sense, does it? So let's look a little closer here. That word for is very common in Greek and is usually translated for, but it can also be translated as after all. And I kind of think that might help here. This story, as you know, immediately follows the story of feeding the 5,000 with barley loaves and fishes. So it's probably a safe bet that the loaves here refer to that miracle. The Greek conjunction but can mean all sorts of things, depending on the context. But the consensus in this case seems to be that it means something like indeed. And the bit at the end about hardened hearts, that's a concept we see all over the Bible, usually meaning that someone is clinging so tight to their own power that they absolutely refuse to acknowledge God. But that doesn't seem to apply to the disciples, right? They're pursuing God, not hardening their hearts towards him. So that's a clue we might need to use one of the alternative meanings of this Greek word. The word can also mean dull, obtuse, or thick-skinned, and that does sound a lot like the disciples, although the Greek still does carry a connotation of willfulness, willful ignorance. It's, It's not that they're hardening their hearts against God. It's that they don't want Jesus to be the suffering servant sort of Messiah. Because they are blinded by their expectations of a warrior king Messiah, They have not yet realized the magnitude of who Jesus actually is or that his mission is far larger in time and scope than first century Palestine's problems. And even when this does begin to dawn on them, they are like everyone else. They think Jesus will somehow raise up an army or something and overpower the Romans. So a good paraphrase of this verse might read, the disciples were incredibly amazed seeing Jesus walk on water. After all, they had not understood about the loaves, and now they could not wrap their heads around this walking on water stuff. The disciples have lost the plot line. Who is Jesus really? With all these boat crossings and running around the shores of the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night, It takes a bit for the people to find Jesus again. When they finally do catch up with him at home in Capernaum, they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? Mark and Matthew both say that Jesus just starts right back up healing people. He heals whoever comes to him. John, however, adds a big famous teaching. Now, this teaching is not in any of the other Gospels. 
we know that in his gospel, John tries to explain Jesus theologically. His gospel is not so much of a history as it is a theological treatise using historical events as examples. So here, where Jesus' ministry shifts into a new gear, it makes sense that John would have something to say about it theologically. John is going to try to show how what just happened fits into the bigger picture of who Jesus is really. So in John's gospel, Jesus says to the people, you are looking for me because I give you food. You're not looking for me because you actually understand the signs. Don't work for food that spoils. Work for the food that feeds your entire life eternally. The Son of Man will give this food to you because God the Father has set his seal of approval upon him. Jesus is saying that God has given his signet to Jesus with full authority to heal us and feed us and fill us in every way. Well, the people are on board with this. Jesus just said not to work for regular food that spoils, but to work for eternal food that comes from God. The people think he's saying to quit their jobs and work for God instead, and they'll get this free eternal food. So they say, what must we do? How do we do God's works? They missed the part where Jesus said he was going to give them the eternal food. Jesus says, just believe. Believe in the one God has sent to you. And the people say, okay, but how do we know we can believe in you? What sign will you give us? You can almost see Jesus smacking his head, right? They say, hey, what about manna? That's what Moses gave our ancestors as a sign. Besides, it was edible. <laughs> Jesus says, Moses didn't give you manna. God did. God's bread is the bread that comes from heaven and gives life to the whole world. And the people are like, that works. Give us that bread all the time. By this time, Jesus has got to be rolling his eyes. They are totally missing his point about the living bread being from God. It's like it's a spiritual thing, folks. The people are so focused on getting as much literal physical bread as possible for as long as possible that they're missing the point. Now, this is all happening in the synagogue in Capernaum. And Jesus is like, guys, I am the bread. Come to me and never be hungry. Believe in me and never be thirsty again. I will never banish you. Now, pause there for a second. Jesus says he will never banish anyone. He won't cast us out or reject us. And anyone who says they are following Jesus, but are banishing you or casting you out, must have lost their way somehow. There are no gatekeepers for Jesus. Jesus really pounds this point home. He says, it is absolutely God's will that I not lose anyone, 
but that I will raise everyone up in or by the last day. My father wants everyone who lays eyes on me and believes in me to have life forever. The people start muttering to each other. Wait a minute. How can he say he is the bread from heaven? This is Jesus, you know, Mary and Joseph's son. And Jesus says, stop it. No one comes to me unless the father draws him. Well, that's actually the sanitized, smoothed over version we are accustomed to hearing. What the Greek actually says is, no one has the power to come to me if it weren't for the father dragging him. <laughs> that. That's a little more graphic picture, isn't it? It's a picture of God getting out there and dragging us into life one by one as we are helpless to do it for ourselves. It's It reminds me of that video of that mama bear dragging her cubs across the street one by one. And even when they go scampering back, she patiently pursues them and drags them safely across. And Jesus repeats that everyone God drags in Jesus will raise up on the last day. Then Jesus quotes a snippet of prophecy from Isaiah 54. We always want to pay attention when Jesus quotes prophecy. The verse he quotes, verse 13, says, All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. I'm quoting from the New International Version here. And Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, isn't he? The people he's teaching right now are the actual descendants of those Isaiah was speaking to 700 years ago. Jesus' quote is from a huge, long prophecy about the tenderness and mercy of God towards his people. It says, in a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. How beautiful is that? When someone quotes you some awful passage about God smiting people, remember that not only Is it the ancient cultural interpretation of suffering? But it also has to do with God being so angry with Israel that he hid his face, withdrawing his protection for a moment. And even that is only for a short while. God's entire impulse is to love us and heal us and give us peace if we'll only let him. Jesus continues, everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. Now, this verse is often used to imply that if you don't believe in Jesus, then you don't know God either. But that's not what it says. In this context, it says, if you know the Father, you will also recognize who Jesus is. And there's even more depth if we dig into the Greek just a little. The Greek word for come can also mean go. (laughs) Confusing, right? But the truth. 
So this could just as easily be translated as everyone who has heard the father and learned from him goes with me. If you know and walk with God, you are by definition on the same path Jesus is walking. I don't think this is Jesus trying to exclude anyone. I think he's trying to be clear that God's path and Jesus' path are the same thing. Jesus is saying he speaks the words of God and he does what God is doing. You will find God and Jesus together, always. This is a big recurring theme with Jesus. Jesus says, I am the only one who has actually seen the Father. I come from God. I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. This living bread is my very flesh. Unless you have eaten the flesh of the Son of Man and have drunk his blood, you do not have life within you. The one eating my flesh and drinking my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day, and they will live forever. You can imagine how well that went over. The Jews start arguing, saying, how can he give us his flesh to eat? That's pretty gross, right? We'll do a little thinking about this in our breakout groups today. (laughs) So much fun. So I'm pitching in breakout groups. And I will see you in about 15 minutes. So these were great questions, Gail. Uh-huh. We made we made great progress, I think, on our questions. We had discussion, but the questions were great. Yeah. Oh, good. But we we didn't get to number three, and we just mentioned number four in relationship to some comments that were being made. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we wanted more time. Oh, <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's let's just kind of back up and do a quick little consensus around one and two, and then we'll move to three and four and do them together. So, so on one, it was imagine yourself as one of the Jews in the synagogue hearing this and that, you know, the, there's nothing, you know, nothing about crucifixion or resurrection. None of that has happened. So what would be your reaction if you were just one of the Jews listening here? Yeah, go ahead. So I said that if you're Jewish and you're in the synagogue, you've been studying the old Testament. So you may have heard the rumors about Jesus, but unless you know somebody who's been with them, you don't know about any of the miraculous words he says about God and the promise or the deeds he's done. You you don't know about, oh, sorry, my phone just cut in. Oh, that's okay. We didn't hear uh, it. But yeah, okay. So, um, well, I mean, it blanked out my screen. 
So I think that that would sound like extraordinary storytelling. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it. What if you had, what if you were one of the people who had been, you know, rushing around the following him, you've been following him for some weeks now, trying to get bread and healing and whatever you can get from him. And you're listening in at the synagogue and he says that, what would you think? Well, we, we had, we had um, a variety of thoughts. Um, one was probably quite a few of the people thought he was crazy. Um, another one, the idea of talking about blood, drinking blood would have sounded horrifically heretical because of the dietary laws around right. blood. Mm -hmm. and Completely then the opposite, one, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the third thought was that if you were part of that crowd that had just gotten part of the, the bread and the fish on the other side of, of the, the water, um, you would go, oh, hey, that was just, you know, the appetizer. Um, and this is gonna... This, this oh, Marlene. <laughs> and somebody else, we were talking about that, um, how God was so adamant and has been so adamant about human sacrifice. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is, Jesus is turning that on its ear. And you're going to think, I think people would be very confused because it's a no-no and now it's okay. <laughs> uh, so let's move into what the disciples think, all right? They've been like right there on the front lines the whole time. How are they going to react to these words? Well, they will they will have just heard his words about what happened when he fed the 5,000. And so this is a continuation, even though publicly it's a continuation of what he said to them. So they may have been less, uh, I mean, it still might have been shocking words, but I don't know that clearly they didn't reject him because of what he said. Mm -hmm nor did some of the people who didn't turn against him on at the crucifixion because it wasn't just the disciples. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we, so that, so if you were, so there could have been then actually in, when we start next week, we do find out that a lot of his disciples did like hit the door at this point, but they, they left. Okay. But a lot of them didn't obviously, because he still has right. his, his, and he still mm -hmm. has his 12, but none of the 12 left him. Some of the others mm -hmm. definitely did. Um, okay. So, so, so That's Judas. Judas, well, Judas hadn't left him. Jesus is right in there amongst him. He's, he is one of yeah, the leaders. So Judas is all on board right here. Um, no, I meant after the crucifixion. Yeah, sure. So in this, is, moment, this, that is in last supper. Isn't this where um, you start seeing them more saying, who is this guy um, amongst themselves? Because the miracles seem like they have ramped up and the, and, and the words have gone beyond just parables. And, you know, we, we've stepped beyond parables and healing. And this is something bigger deeper stranger what do y'all think this makes me wonder as to jesus's personality because i would expect he's very humble 
I would I've always envisioned him as a, a passive, humble, calm, quiet type of individual, but we also see instances where he shows other aspects of his temperament and things like that. But this passage makes me wonder, was he a very charismatic person? Because he's people are seeking him out. You can be all those things and charismatic. Yes. I would think he would be a very charismatic person that you want to be around. And thankfully, he's the Messiah and he does great things with that charisma. But we all know people who do both great and non-great things that are charismatic. Mm -hmm. But I've never really wondered about Jesus, the person, and his personality. <laughs> I love that. I, I told the story that in the Lutheran church, I grew up Missouri Lutheran, that in junior high, we had confirmation. And generally, if you were in confirmation, you were an acolyte. And one of the duties was that you prepped communion. And so... I mean, I saw the wafers in a box. I poured, you know, grape juice from a bottle, right? So I think that the, I, and we were taught this is the blood and body, okay? Because um, Luther is just a reformed Catholic, right? But, uh, but I have just always taken it figuratively. I am the way, I am the truth. He just fed 5,000. Now he's feeding us. And this is what, this is our nourishment, that together in community, when we gather together in his name and we focus on his word and we know Jesus' words, then, did I lose y'all? No, no, you're there. No, you're fine. I don't know what's going on with my computer. It keeps mm -hmm. blanking out. So <laughs> that, and I think, I think that if I had been a disciple and seen what I'd seen and heard what I'd heard. Because clearly Jesus is still intact at this point. This yeah, kind of, you have to bottom. kind of think what, what, how would you react if he was standing physically in front of you or sitting in your living room teaching you Bible study and saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, you know, what would you yeah. think? I question. I would think he's now, should I be concerned that he's now the devil? Yeah, right? Yeah. Or, or it's like, okay, what was in that bread and fish? I, mean, <laughs> I think well, I'm still know, on a trip. And I was also thinking, you know, at this point there, um, you know, Jesus has been trying to get away from the crowds. He's been going nonstop. He's exhausted and he's grieving. And was there concern about his mental and emotional health? Mm -hmm. You know, this is really getting to him now. He's starting to talk crazy. <laughs> you know, Gail, this this comment, what Joe brought up, also this question took us down a little um, sidetrack where we were discussing communion. Mm -hmm. And I had shared that I grew up believing in it actually is the body and blood of Christ once it's been blessed. And we all had different instances. And like, like Joe, I was in the sacristy club at the private school I went to. 
And I laid out the priest's robes and the Eucharist and the wine. We used real wine in the chalice. And it was from a container, but once the priest blesses it and offers it up to us and to God, it is no longer what came out of that box. It is what we will consume, the body and blood of Christ, as instructed. There were others in the group who believed it it didn't become that until you actually consumed it. Not once blessed, once consumed. And then we had a little side discussion of what do you do with the remainder? And it's always been my understanding because the priest consumed all remainder. But at my church, I spoke with the pastor about what happens with the gluten-free bread and the challah and the juice. And I was informed that it's returned to the earth, right? which makes sense because that to me seems like waste. So everything comes from the earth, plants, animals, everything. Us, we all come from the earth and the earth belongs to God. Yes. And there are many traditional, those are the two main ways of disposing of it in in most um, denominations. Um, But also in addition to the two uh, beliefs that you mentioned, there is there are, are, are other denominations within Christianity that believe the whole thing is symbolic. You know, it never is anything but a symbol. Um, there is no trans. What's transubstantiation is the con- it converts into actual flesh and blood. Um, and um, and and it seems to me that we can hold all of these with open hands, <laughs> um, because in the end, we're obviously not cannibals. And um, in the end, we have understood it, I think, to be spiritual, right? One way or another, but that it is the connection of the spirit and the body and our bodies. It is, is connecting the spirit and the bodies. But I have to tell you that there have been wars fought over this. There has been bloodshed, mm-hmm. little human bloodshed over this. And whole swaths of denominations have split off over this exact this issue. So I just want I don't want to go down any dire path. Um, I just want us to all kind of agree that we we can all see this from different ways. Oh, absolutely! And I was just sharing that that was ingrained in me from a young age. And it sticks with me, sure. but I'm seeing things in new lights now mm-hmm. that I'm able to open my eyes and question things that have always been. And so, but, you know, I go to YouTube church. I go to church YouTube on my, for my congregation. And when we do communion, my husband had asked an, uh, another, not our church, but another uh, pastor in the denomination, how close do you got to be for that blessing to go through the people? And I thought he was nuts, but actually it's a good question. How does that blessing happen to your house? And and like you said, Pastor Gail, it's symbolic. It's your relationship with God. It's committing yourself again and again and again to your 
belief in the Father and Christ. So let's let's do question three. So let's think about your um, one of these gospel writers, and you lived through the the crucifixion and the resurrection. Um, John included all of these words in his gospel. Matthew and Mark did not. Um, so I think we, that was, we have just finished, question three, we have talked about like from being from our side, looking back in the resurrection. But question four was, if you were Matthew and Mark, why did you decide to omit this passage? Yeah, what exactly, exactly did they uh, You're getting a big echo and feedback, um, Shirley. The, 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 what I'm saying is, if Jesus said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, um, and if you do, I will, you know, I will raise you up on the last day. John included those words in his story. But Matthew and Mark completely omitted them. If Jesus did say them, why would Matthew and Mark omit them from their stories? They, and John was written after Matthew and Mark? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Perhaps he didn't want people to get hung up on the sacrificial part of it and miss the message. Mm. That's, a, that's a good answer. <laughs> that's a good idea. Well, last week you were talking about how John had that his writing was to justify his theological beliefs. So it it could have been just a way for him to rationalize what he has just experienced, mm-hmm. just to kind of verbally process an alternative reason of why Jesus died on the cross and why mm-hmm. he resurrected and why there was a last supper. That is, I think some people chronologically, I can't think of the word, they tell stories differently. No, it's the eyes at the end, chronologically, but anyway, stories differently. Some people, it's event for event, no matter how anybody interprets it, some people aren't. I don't know. And Mark definitely was not chronological. Mark was designing his story in a chiasm. So I could see picking and choosing certain things. But if you're going to tell this story, which he did, of the feeding of the 5,000, all of them told the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Why exclude this this part about eat my flesh and drink my blood? Um, My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And I will raise you up on the last day i wonder if it was a cultural thing that they would be afraid that their message wouldn't be received mm-hmm. if they had included it can you give us the 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 30 second reminder of who matthew and mark were writing to matthew is writing to the jews he's the one that always put the old testament prophecy in you know, he's the, always the one saying Jesus is who is the Messiah because he fulfilled this prophecy and he fulfilled this prophecy. And he fulfilled okay. this. So he has to be writing to Jews. Only Jews would care. Um, Mark is uh, is the earliest of the Gospels and he's 
writing in Achaism and his, he is writing to the oppressed people under Roman rule. So, you know, probably Jews, you know, but he's, he's definitely writing to the oppressed under Roman rule. That is like the focus of his book. So for Matthew, if he's so focused on the Old Testament prophecies, is there in the prophecies this flesh and blood Mm. language? And if not, then it's reasonable for him to not distract. Mm -hmm. Right. And I would not assume, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I can't bring to mind any blood ones. Um, there's definitely um, the idea that God will provide bread, which is why the people brought up manna, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the, um, but there's nothing about eating flesh and blood of the Messiah. None of that, none of that kind of language is out there in, in the Hebrew and Bible. If I were writing to oppressed people, I wouldn't write anything that sounded sacrificial, probably. Yeah. I mean, under yeah. Roman rule already. And yeah. Mm. it's a thorny it 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 recalls the crucifixion and to suggest that somehow you're either involved or going to experience that yourself might be just horrifying and off-putting to the point that does it fit the purpose of what they're writing to to joe's point about um uh about the fact that the the mark is writing to the oppressed people right right so i think it, i think it maybe also illustrates that the blood and the wine aren't the instrumental things here in the message i mean the actual things mm-hmm. and john uh, so, takes on those big i mean john starts with in the beginning was the word and the word was made flesh right so he's connecting that and so it makes perfect sense for him to very good serious focus on the flesh at that point. And that's a wonderful point. And he's also the one that we get the big long chapters about the Last Supper from, where Jesus says, "This is my body. This is my blood." So it this would this is like a midpoint. You've got that beginning point that Martha pointed out. You've got the end point of the Last Supper. This is my body. This is my blood. And and this midpoint. So I think you might be onto something, Martha, that perhaps John has overall envisioned Jesus as the flesh and blood life of God brought to earth. Yeah. Mind blown, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and so and in the and in the or when he's talking in the synagogue he doesn't mention wine he just says drink Mm -hmm. the wine comes at the last supper Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where he says you know this wine in this cup is Mm -hmm. my blood isn't that the first time that that equivalency would have been made i'd have to go look um but it's just that just so i i'm 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 what i'm trying to what i'm hoping is dawning on you now is that who is telling the story and the perspective they're telling it from makes all the difference in not only 
the events they include, but the words that are in Jesus' mouth. Well, and I I look at this group who I've traveled with for a while, and you're imparting information to us, and we're at all different levels of understanding and acceptance. And if we were asked to sit down and write gospel, our own good news, how different it would be. would we leave out or we it's same thing you were just saying I, I just i see the humanness in again the man <laughs> that sat to write this you know i mean i don't know how you take the experience out of the writer and you know in and in some language you could say Mark hasn't become what he has consumed. You know, I mean, when we take in new thoughts and new information, each of you have given me new things to think about, some things to let go of. You know, I have become what I have consumed from you all. And and if I were to sit down and write it, you would be in that writing. There would be no way to divorce myself from each of you, you know? And I, so that's kind of my response to that question, Gail. I, I hope I said it well, but. Oh, I, it was beautiful. And surely mm-hmm, you did putting in the, in the perfect, comments. but the last thing I'd like us to consider, which it kind of comes off of this is, okay. So if we are looking at this from John's perspective, all right, that we're taking this big macro look where Jesus is the bread, the actual flesh and blood of God. Think about what it means to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I think how we've all, I have always seen it or been taught it was Oh, I'm sharing in the crucifixion and I will suffer because I'm a Christian and we have to, you know, eat the flesh and drink the blood. That was what I was taught. But that's not what I'm hearing in this story, in this because because the end result is has to be life giving. What what do you all what what do you all think? Well, the lines just prior to John's, um, I'm the bread of life. I've seen God eat my flesh, drink my blood is you're looking for me because I gave you food. Don't work for food that spoils. All you need to do is believe in me and you will never be hungry and thirsty again. For so many, it's like you experienced, which is, you got to connect blood in the cross. You got to connect blood in the cross and you got to put yourself there, you know, and sit in that blood. But the, the lines just before that don't go there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just glad I didn't grow up thinking that. I'm sorry you did, Gail. That sounds. It was all very sacrificial language. It was like God killed Jesus on the cross as a sacrifice, you know, and we have to kill ourselves on the cross with Jesus. And, you know, that was what I was raised with. And I, and we will get to all that cross stuff in a, in a bit, (laughs) but we even, 
with banged nails into a cross on Good Friday. Yeah. As part of our Good Friday service, everybody in church got a nail and you went up and you pounded it into the cross. Wow. And, the, and that, that about- did happen. Jesus mm-hmm. actually, actually was crucified, you know? Mm-hmm. But what I'm feeling here is John decoupling that sacrificial language from this big overall idea that the blood and the flesh are life-giving to us. Well, Gail, one thing that came out in our discussion was how, when we talked about communion, was how each institution interprets and applies the same scripture so differently. And one thing Joe had mentioned was it's communion, it's community, it's bringing you closer to Christ. That's what it is. It's not how, how you get there is not as important as that you get there. Right. And that you commit yourself to God and to Christ and you remember who you are and who you belong to. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I don't think it's it's a mistake that he did that with 12 other people, not one-on-one. I believe part of the lesson is together we are the body of Christ too. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that we're plugging into life, not death. That John is coupling this flesh and blood drinking with life. And, And whereas in my tradition, in my faith tradition, it was coupled with death. I like what Shirley put in the chat um, that you also can take this back to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For you will be satisfied. And it's that same Greek word um, of of the people being satisfied after they've eaten their fill. and And Jesus uses that as the springboard for this, for this language. Does John have the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, no, only Matthew. And which, Matthew. which, um, which I'm fine with. I'm not. Uh, I I like you bringing that up, but it's the consistent message that even though he doesn't have the Sermon on the Mount, he does have. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this you're looking that, for me because yeah. I gave you food. You thirst and hunger. Yes. Yes. And Jesus is saying what you're really thirsting and hungering for is life, is righteousness, is being with God, you know, there, I love seeing you guys put these pieces together, and we are going to stop here, and you just go (laughs) right on putting pieces together, wonderful, love to all of you.